We shall turn now to the Word of God and we shall read from Revelation chapter 6. Revelation chapter 6 and we may read from the verse 9. Revelation 6 verse 9. And when he had opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of them that were slain for the word of God and for the testimony which they held. And they cried with a loud voice, saying, How long, O Lord, holy and true, dost thou not judge and avenge our blood on them that dwell in the earth? And white robes were given unto every one of them, and it was said unto them that they should rest yet for a little season, until their fellow servants also, and their brethren that should be killed as they were, should be fulfilled. And I beheld, when he had opened the sixth seal, and lo, there was a great earthquake, and the sun became black as sackcloth of hair, and the moon became as blood, and the stars of heaven fell unto the earth even as a fig tree casteth her untimely figs when she is shaken of a mighty wind. And the heaven departed as a scroll when it is rolled together, and every mountain and island were moved out of their places. And the kings of the earth, and the great men, and the rich men, and the chief captains, and the mighty men, and every bondman and every free man hid themselves in the dens and in the rocks of the mountains and said to the mountains and rocks, Fall on us and hide us from the face of him that sitteth on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of his wrath is come and who shall be able to stand. And may the Lord bless to us again this brief reading of his holy word. We continue then to consider the opening of the seals, the unsealing of the book, the scroll that was taken by the hand of the glorious Redeemer as he occupies the throne at the right hand of the majesty and high. We have been looking at the uh, unfolding, the revelation of the contents, whatever way men try to describe or however they try to define what this book is. Uh, some will say it's the decrees of God, others it's the book of redemption. They have different definitions, but regardless of what men have to say, the fact is, as the seals are opened one by one, so we are given a vision in symbols of events taking place in this world. No one can dispute with that. John is given the privilege of going in vision into heaven to see a throne. And then the occupant of the throne and then the activities resulting from his occupation of that throne. And you and I are here in the chapter 6 taking note of what happens as he opens six of those seals. And then there is a break in chapter 7 because certain things are necessary before the seventh seal is opened in chapter 8. And it is clear from the chapter 7 that no matter what happens in this world, no matter what is taking place, 
the people of God are an absolute safety. They are sealed, they are marked, they are known, and they, in the midst of all that's going on, are preserved and kept for the glory of God. Now, when we come to the sixth chapter, and we've already considered the uh, opening or the unsealing of the first four seals, and then we did, uh, to some degree, mention the opening of the fifth seal, and uh, John sees the souls of the martyrs who had been martyred for the sake of the gospel. Now, you imagine how John would have felt seeing such a sight. Remember who he is, and at the stage in life he's at, the oldest, the last remaining of the apostles. He has witnessed throughout his life and ministry the martyring of different of the servants of God. He is aware that Peter has been martyred, Paul has been martyred, James has been martyred. He is aware that Stephen has been martyred, and these are just but a few of the many. And he might, on various occasions, be tempted to think, well, Jesus said he was going to build his church. And look what's happening to his church. Those who preach the gospel are not just being persecuted, they are actually being put to death. The church cannot indefinitely survive such an onslaught. And then John is shown, well, look, John, Peter isn't dead, Stephen isn't dead, Paul is not dead. He, we read, saw under the altar the souls of them that were slain for the word of God and for the testimony which they held. Now, it is important when reading those words to take note of what it says. Because there is an opinion around, even amongst professing Christians, that somehow or other, martyrdom is a kind of virtue, a status, to which those who ever reach it are to be recognized as peculiarly, uh, amazingly faithful and uncompromising, and thus we ought to remember them and we ought to give them place. The Jesuits have hundreds of martyrs. The Church of Rome has martyrs. Islam has its martyrs. The cults have their martyrs. The uh, various false religions all have their roles of martyrs. And martyrdom is somehow or other placed in a special place. Well, he was a martyr. She was a martyr. We ought to acknowledge them as being very special. The martyrs that God considers special and that have a communication with himself are those who are slain for the word of God, for the word of God, and for the testimony which they held. These are the only martyrs that have a recognition in heaven. Whatever other causes or principles man might perish for or woman, these are those who gave their lives for the word of God, uncompromising in their stand for and upon the word of God and their testimony in connection with that word. 
Now they are crying with a loud voice. And they are heard. John is listening to a heavenly conversation. All kinds of opinions are expressed about what's going on in heaven. What are the Christians who have passed from this scene of time? What are they doing? What are they thinking? What are their activities? And so on. Well, much of it remains a mystery, but here we're told that these souls are in communication with the throne. The throne that John saw. And what are they saying? How long, O Lord, holy and true, dost thou not judge and avenge our blood and them that dwell in the earth? We're in heaven. But what about the persecutors on earth? What about the persecuting systems? What about those who are destroying thy church and thy people? Is our blood not to be avenged? How long is it going to take? Now you must know that you're never going to hear in heaven anything that's erroneous. Those that John sees, who are they? He sees the souls of those who are among the spirits of just men made perfect. There's no sin in heaven. There's no sinful statements made by the redeemed. They don't ask for anything that is erroneous or contrary to the will of God. They are simply asking here then, how long? We know it's going to happen. We know it's God's purpose and intention to avenge the blood of his people, the blood of his persecuted church. As you go back to the death of Abel. And God spoke to Cain and asked him where his brother was. And what did God say? His blood is crying unto me from the ground. His blood is crying to me. His blood speaks to me and I hear it. And here is the souls of the martyred dead for the sake of the gospel and the truth And they are asking, well, how long is it going to be before these strong and powerful persecutors and enemies are to be dealt with? And we're told that there was white robes given unto every one of them, and it was said unto them. Here's God replying. Here's the one who occupies the throne, responding. When they're at how long? This is what they're told, that they should rest for a little season. Until their fellow servants also, and their brethren that should be killed as they were, should be fulfilled. So John was made aware the persecution isn't finished. The opposition to Christ's gospel isn't finished. There are going to be others slain standing for the word of God. There's going to be more persecution against those who adhere to the word of God. This is what John is hearing. So long as men and women are prepared to stand for the word of God and nothing else, uncompromising with God's word, bearing testimony to the fact they believe it to be the word of God, they are going to be persecuted. That's what John is being shown. So he is understanding then 
how the church is going to progress. The white horse has uh, rode forth. The glorious Redeemer goes conquering and to conquer. And yet as that conquering is taking place, as the gospel is progressing, it meets with fearful opposition. And so you see then the way in which the church develops, the gospel progresses, the glorious Redeemer advances, conquering, and to conquer in the end, every last enemy shall be put under his feet. But as he does, and as the gospel progresses, so the church bleeds. Here's John showing, shown the bleeding church, the progressing church, the advancing, the victorious church. But it is a bleeding church. And it may not necessarily bleed literally all the time, but I believe that where there is real grace in the soul, that soul will bleed, not literally, but it will bleed spiritually in agony and in pain and through suffering for the state, the low state of the church and the fearful opposition to Christ's cause and to his word. Now then, we come to verse 12, And I beheld when he had opened the sixth seal. And lo, there was a great earthquake. And the sun became black as sackcloth of hair, and the moon became as blood, and so on. Now we must remember we're reading here of symbols. This is symbolic language. Now you will understand, I'm sure, I've perhaps mentioned it in the past, there are three basic schools of interpretation, particularly the book of the Revelation. There are the school of the futurists, and they believe that uh, what is here recorded in the book of the Revelation is covering basically the whole of history right to the end of time. That's what the book is all about. And then there, of course, are the uh, preterists, and they believe that uh, the events that are recorded here basically all took place in the first century. And uh, that it, the book is really basically covering a very short period of uh, history. Then there is uh, the, uh, I should have said, the futurist, he's, uh, considered as one, and we must understand there's very often an overlapping. And when uh, someone says, oh, well, I belong to the historist uh, uh, mindset, or someone says, well, I'm a futurist, someone says, I'm a preterist, very often you'll find there is some degree of overlapping. The futurist, he is of a mind that uh, the events here basically center around the second coming. They all believe in the second coming, but the futurist thinks that the events recorded here are uh, those that take place just before the second coming of the Lord and uh, just after he comes to reign upon the earth and so on. The historicist, I should have said, is he who believes that uh, the book is basically covering history right to the end of time. Now, I do not personally uh, 
adhere to any one school of thought. And uh, the reason is because of what is stated here in the scriptures, in the book itself. Uh, There are two statements that should enable us to appreciate what area or what period is covered by the content of the book. First of all, and we've noted it in the past, in the first chapter, you have uh, the things uh, that are revealed are to come to pass shortly. Uh, John isn't thinking, well, this will be a thousand years from now or two millenniums from now. He's expecting they're going to take place Now, very shortly, I can expect or the next generation can expect to see them taking place. But also then, when he is finished writing to the seven churches in the chapter 4, he's told to come up hither, I will show thee things which must be hereafter. So there are things that are to take place shortly. And then there are things that will follow after that. So that is how we ought to approach the uh, book and its contents, that there are things that were to take place very shortly. What happened is, we noted last week, during the very lifetime of many who heard the Savior preach, But also then there are things to happen beyond that. And that's what we should keep in mind. Now, Jesus said, and we may go back to it in the uh, Gospel according to Matthew in the chapter 24. And this is one of the great mistakes that you will find many who deal with prophecy making. And people follow them. In Matthew 24 and verse 3, As he, Jesus, sat upon the Mount of Olives, the disciples came unto him privately, saying, Tell us, when shall these things be? That's their question. Well, these these things are going to happen. You're saying the temple's going to be destroyed. If we know anything about it, it has taken all these years to build. It will take a time to destroy it. Tell us. Why would they ask that question if they were convinced the Savior can't know? He can't give us any answer. He doesn't know when it's going to happen. Tell us. When shall these things be? And what shall be the sign of thy coming? Now, and I have to say as we try to speak positively about the teaching of uh, the book, we also have on occasions, I believe, a duty to refute what is taught erroneously about events in this book. What shall be the sign of thy coming? And immediately, what are we told by some? This refers to his second coming. When he shall appear and the graves shall be opened, and the dead shall arise and meet him in the air if they are the people of God, and so on. What shall be the sign of thy coming? And in addition, of the end of the world. And so they connect the two things together. When he comes, the second coming Well, won't that be the end of the world? He'll come at the end. So therefore, when is this to be? Tell us, 
what shall be the sign of thy coming? And what shall be the end of the world? As I said, the word that is used here is the end. It really means the end of this world as we know it now. If you go with me over to the epistle of Second Peter, you will see there that Peter refers in the uh, providence of God and his judgments upon sinful generations and a sinful world. We read <clears throat> verse 4, For if God spared not the angels that sinned, but cast them down to hell, and delivered them into chains of darkness, to be reserved unto judgment, and spared not the old world. He spared not what? The old world. Now we know that the old world that was not spared was the world that Noah was in and the world in which he built an ark to save his family. And God said that he would judge that old world. In fact, Peter writes, he spared not the old world, but saved Noah, the eighth person, a preacher of righteousness, bringing in the flood upon the world of the ungodly. Now, the word is cosmos here. It's not the same word as is used in Matthew 24, but it is the world of the ungodly. And that came to an end. And when God brought Noah and his family out of the ark, yes, it was the old world. But it was a new world. It was a different world. And God set a bow in the sky as the reminder, the symbol of his covenant, that he would not again destroy the world with a flood. The old world had experienced God's divine wrath poured upon it, and while it was the same earth, the same planet, it was the same world in one sense, Yet that world that Noah had lived in had come to an end. It was not anymore the same world. It had changed dramatically, and we're told that it changed environmentally as well as in other ways. Now then, when Jesus says... Or when he's asked the question, uh, when shall be the sign of thy coming and of the end of the world? Why were they asking that? Because they understood a dramatic change has been prophesied by the prophets again and again and again. We read from the prophecy uh, of uh, Joel for a reason. Because there you have similar terminology, similar language to what we have in the chapter 7, or, or chapter 6 rather, of uh, Revelation. Verse 28 of Joel 2, it shall come to pass afterward, after many other events in the history of Israel, it shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out my Spirit upon all flesh, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy your old men shall dream dreams, your young men shall see visions, and so on. 
And what did Peter say in the day of Pentecost? When people were inquiring, are these men drunk? How is it that we hear every man the word being declared in his own language? And Peter explained it by saying, this that you're seeing right now as you stand here, all you thousands of people, here gathered at Jerusalem for Pentecost. As I stand and expound the word to you, and you're wondering, well, this is a strange phenomenon. This is most unusual. We've never witnessed, our fathers have never witnessed anything like this. What is actually happening? What does Peter say? This is the fulfillment of the prophecy of Joel. You are seeing what he prophesied. And then, what else does Joel say? Verse 29, also upon the servants and upon the handmaids in those days, will I pour out my spirit. And then, I will show wonders in the heavens and in the earth, blood and fire and pillars of smoke. The sun shall be turned into darkness and the moon into blood before the great and terrible day of the Lord come. There is going to be an unusual upheaval. The world is going to experience an upheaval that will change it dramatically. And in the uh, chapter that we are in from Revelation, what do we read there? When the sixth seal was opened, there was a great earthquake. And the sun became black as sackcloth of hair, and the moon became as blood. And you have these prophetic teachers telling us the day will come when you will look up at the moon, and it will be red, and it will be turned to blood, and the stars will start falling to the earth, and men will be perishing because the whole of the universe will be in turmoil. These that we read of, these events are being symbolized in such a way as to indicate to John and to the church that God purposes to bring about a dramatic change that will change the whole of the world. The political system, the economic system, is going to be a different kind of a world. And God is going to be seen in action to such a degree that men are going to be terrified. They're going to be terrified of the one that they denied. You think of it, men and women today, Oh, there's no God. We don't have to worry about a judgment. We don't have to concern ourselves about meeting God or accounting to God. We are told that men here were hiding themselves or uh, seeking to hide from God, calling upon the mountains and the rocks, fall on us, hide us. From whom? From him that sitteth on the throne, the one who has taken the book into his hand. The one who is exercising power from this throne. The one who is ruling and reigning over everything. Hide us from him. We didn't acknowledge him. We, as in the second Sam, we were of a mind to rebel against him. We will not have this man to reign over us. Why do the heathen rage and the people imagine a vain thing? 
Now they're crying to be hid from him who is in the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. The wrath of God's Lamb. The wrath of the Lamb who bled. The wrath of the Lamb that died to atone for sin. The wrath of the Lamb for the great day. The great day of his wrath has now come. And who shall survive it? Who shall be able to stand against it? Now, one of the things that we must keep in mind, we must not depart from it, is this. That's central to every event that is symbolized and is revealed to us. Central to it is the throne. Everything that happens, happens because of who is on the throne. And because of what he purposes and what he decrees from that Throne. Now let us ask, whose throne is this? When you and I are reading here, John saw a throne. And what goes into our minds or what comes into our minds? What are we thinking about? Well, it must be whether John actually saw a literal throne or whatever. He was seeing the seat of power. He was seeing the seat of power in heaven. And then there are those, you see, and they teach, well, when Christ comes, the second coming, he's going to descend to Mount Olivet. And the mountain is going to be cleaved in two. And he is going to come and he's going to reign in Jerusalem. There are lots of people around and this is what they believe. He's going to reign on the throne of David. And the Jews are going to prosper and they're going to be restored Their kingdom, remember what the disciples asked the Savior? When are you going to, are you going to now restore the kingdom of David? Because that was the expectation of many. And there are these dispensationalists and premillennialists who believe this is what's going to happen. And we're going to see King Jesus in Jerusalem, occupying the throne of David, and so on. And people imagine this is going to happen. And the reason they believe it is because they do not pay attention to what is taught in the Scriptures. What do you think about this throne? Who occupies it? It is the glorious Redeemer, as we've said. And who is he? He is a priest king. No ordinary king. He's a priest king after the order of Melchizedek. He is of a unique order. He is a priest king and he exercises his power and his authority as a priest king so that this glorious throne of which we speak and of which John saw becomes what? The throne of grace. The throne of grace. Were you, my dear friend, at that throne today? Were you at that throne? 
we are to come boldly to the throne of grace. Where do we find Christ now? Where does the child of God go to communicate with Christ? Does he go to the cross? Does he go to the tomb? He goes to the throne. We are to come boldly to the throne of grace to obtain mercy and to find grace to help in time of need. When last did you have a look at your Savior? Where did you see him? We come to this throne that governs the universe. The one who has the book in his hand. The one who is opening the seals, unfolding its content. And you and I, if we're the children of God, have freedom of access right to him. We can come and bring our burdens to him. We can come and present our great problems to him. Do we come to a weak savior? Do we come to one who's inhibited and limited in his power? Or do we come with our problem and no matter how huge it is, we come to him and to him it is only a little thing. All power is mine. Bring your problems to me. Bring your burdens to this throne. Bring every trial. Bring it here. What notions have we got of him? Who is he? He's the one who's in this throne. But he is there to fulfill all the requirements of the covenant of redemption and grace. This throne is a covenant throne. And everything he does, every exercise of his power, is to bring about the fulfillment of all covenant requirements. Now, keeping in mind the idea that some people have, about David's throne. Let's see what scripture actually does teach. Go back with me to the second book of Samuel and here we have Sam, uh, we have David himself. David, the king of Israel himself speaking. This, these words are not mere words that are the thinking of David as a king or as a man at the end of his life. In verse 2 of Second Samuel 23, we read, The Spirit of the Lord spake by me. Yes, David is just the mouthpiece. It is God the third person, God the Holy Spirit who is speaking. His word was in my tongue. So there's no error here. There's no falsehood here. This is true, eternally true. The God of Israel said, the rock of Israel spake to me, he that ruleth over men must be just ruling in the fear of God. And he shall be as the light of the morning when the sun riseth, even a morning without clouds, as the tender grass springing out of the earth by clear shining after rain. Now David is here saying, the Spirit is speaking by me. If I was left to myself, I might say something different. 
In fact, if I was left to myself, I might say nothing at all. I'd be too embarrassed. I'd be too ashamed. I'd be too humiliated when I look at my ministry, when I look at my reign, when I remember my folly and I remember my sins. I have failed. I have failed again and again. I have not always been diligent and faithful as a king, as a ruler. I have not always obeyed God. I have failed. But then he says, it isn't me speaking, it's the Spirit of God is speaking. And this is what God requires. And then David, in verse 5, says, Although my house be not so with God, Yet he hath made with me an everlasting covenant, ordered in all things. He hath made with me a covenant. And it's an everlasting covenant. It's a covenant that cannot be broken. And it is a covenant that is ordered and sure. There's nothing more sure than this covenant. This is all my salvation. Although, and and all my desire, though he make it not to grow. What is David saying? Well, I'm a bit of a failure. And when God tells me what's required of a king, I'm ashamed. When God the Holy Spirit tells me, What I should have been, I have to say, my house is not in order as it ought to be. I have failed as a father, I failed as a king, I failed in my duties. But he has made with me an everlasting covenant. And that covenant is sure. It is as certain as God's own existence. Now let's keep this in mind and go over to the Acts of the Apostles, chapter 2, and listen to Peter expounding the truth. Acts, chapter 2. Now, you don't need to be a genius to connect what is here with what we've previously written or read. Acts, chapter 2, verse 29. Men and brethren, let me freely speak unto you of the patriarch David. Right. Everybody clear in that? We're speaking about the patriarch David. That he is both dead and buried. Everyone would have agreed. (laughs) Yes, he's dead long ago and he's, he's buried. And a sepulcher is with us unto this day. And you can imagine those standing around listening. That's absolutely true. David is dead. He was a king. He, he, he died. He, he's buried. And we know where his remains are. Therefore, being a prophet, not just a king, but he was a prophet. So when he spoke, he spoke prophetically. What was David doing in Second Samuel 23? The Spirit spake by me. He's speaking as a prophet. What does he say? Therefore being a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that of the fruit of his loins according to the flesh, he would raise up Christ to sit on his throne. And many will say, Amen. That's what we believe. When he comes, when Christ returns, he'll return to Jerusalem And he'll sit on the throne of David. That's what David said. And he said it prophetically. 
Let's continue, verse 31. He, seeing this, before speak of the resurrection of Christ. Can anyone mistake the resurrection of Christ with the second coming of Christ? They're two very different events, aren't they? What was David doing, speaking of the resurrection of Christ? Seeing this, speak of the resurrection, that his soul was not left in hell, neither his flesh did see corruption. This Jesus hath God raised up, whereof we are all witnesses. Therefore, being by the right hand of God exalted, And having received of the Father the promise of the Holy Ghost, he has shed forth this, which ye now see and hear. You're seeing the fulfillment of the prophecy of Joel. Now, let's see what he goes on to say, the apostle. Verse 34. For David is not ascended into the heavens. Yes, he's dead, he's buried, we know where a sepulcher is. And he prophesied that there was a covenant made with him and Christ would sit on his throne. So wouldn't we expect Christ then to sit on his throne? David is not ascended into the heavens, but he saith himself, The Lord said unto my Lord, Sit thou on my right hand until I make thy foes thy footstool. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God hath made that same Jesus, whom ye have crucified, both Lord and Christ. Let us freely speak to you of the patriarch David. What's he talking about when he speaks of God's covenant? That he will give him a seed to sit on the throne. Did he say he'd come to Jerusalem? The trumpet will sound, the dead shall be raised, Christ going to come back, or he may come before the tribulation, all the different comings that men suppose he's going to engage in. David prophesied, and Peter the apostle understands it, as referring to his resurrection. He's going to ascend this throne When he's resurrected. What throne is this? Peter says, David hasn't ascended to that throne. But it is his throne. And Christ is now seated in it. He is now occupying the throne of David. The throne of David in heaven itself. He's resurrected. He's exalted. He's in that throne. Now you might say, well, how can that be? How can it possibly be called or even thought of as being the throne of David in heaven. Well, remember again and again throughout the ministry of the Savior, how men cried out, Jesus, thou son of David. He was recognized as the son of David. But you will also remember that throughout the Old Testament, you have reference upon reference after reference, and again in the New Testament, to the law of Moses. Now, was it the law of Moses or was it the law of God? 
was simply referred to as the law of Moses because he was the mediator of the old covenant and he was the mediator through whom God gave the law. When we come to the throne of David, we have reference after reference in the Old Testament to the throne of David. And yet, it was no more in reality the possession of David than the law was the possession of Moses. The fact is, David's throne was the typical throne of the reality. And that's why you have the reference to Christ occupying the throne of David to be the seed that would sit on the throne of David. It was a type. It was not the final reality. And when we come to this book of the Revelation, we're seeing now the resurrected Christ of whom David spoke prophetically and he's now occupying the throne that is above every other throne. And that's why people get confused and mixed up because they do not sufficiently compare Scripture with Scripture and they overlook the important fundamental principle. It is the New Testament that interprets the Old Testament. And the throne of David, like the land of Israel, we shall have to probably consider that, was typical. People say, with this we must close, people say God made a covenant with Israel to give them a land. And you have all these organizations today, the Friends of Israel, and the Friends of the Jews and whatever, supporting Israel, the nation, the land of Israel, and its claim upon the land. And people think, well, that's what God's covenant was about to Abraham. As a different covenant to what we have in the New Testament. I'll just leave you with this one text in Genesis 17 where uh, God is establishing his covenant with uh, Abraham And in chapter 17, this is what God says. Verse 7 of Genesis 17. I will establish my covenant between me and thee, and thy seed after thee and their generations, for an everlasting covenant. Now, what's this covenant all about? To be a God unto thee, and to thy seed after thee. That's what I'm covenanting to do. Not covenanting to give you a land or a portion of this earth that will always be yours. He says, this is my covenant. That I will be a God to you. And you will be my people. That's what the covenant's about. Now, because of the complications of many of these things and the way that prophecy is distorted and twisted, many of the teaching of Scripture, we have to go slowly through it. God remembered that covenant. Again and again, you'll read through Scripture. God remembered his covenant. And God remembers his covenant when Christ is exalted and occupies the throne. That is according to the terms of his covenant. But we must leave it there. And may we indeed remember when we go on our knees, when we go to Christ, he is in authority. 
We can bring all our problems, and no matter how huge they may be, they're so insignificant in many ways to him in the throne. He is able to do far more exceeding abundantly above what we can ask or think because he occupies that throne. May the Lord bless his word. Let us pray. Our gracious and eternal God, we thank thee for thy word. Thy word is truth. We thank thee for the glorified Christ who is the Savior of his people. Oh, may we see him with the eyes of faith. May we trust him with everything. May thy people be enabled to trust their glorified, exalted Redeemer with everything that concerns them. Lord God, lead us, we pray, to that glorious throne to see the Savior. Pardon us, receive us, for Christ's sake. Amen.